Throughout the 1980s, a strange phenomenon was sweeping North America. They were in a panic. And like people in a panic, they want solutions. Allegations of underground satanic cults torturing and terrorizing children. The thing is, there were no satanic cults preying on children. And nearly 30 years later, the people touched by it all are still picking up the pieces. This isn't a work of fiction. This is a work of history. Satanic Panic, available now. This is a CBC Podcast. Let history reflect the fact that this is the presidency that made a bold choice to proactively engage with oil and gas companies. That's the president of COP28, Sultan al-Jaber, speaking at the opening ceremony of the biggest United Nations climate conference, which is underway now in the United Arab Emirates. Some 70,000 delegates are there for negotiations aimed at reducing carbon emissions after a record-breaking year of fires, floods, and scorching temperatures, and warnings that things are likely just to get worse. The stakes, as you can imagine, are high. The CBC's Susan Ormiston is in Dubai covering the talks. Susan, hello. Hello, Matt. Let's start with where you are, because the place that these talks are taking place in has been controversial from the very beginning. So tell us where you are. Indeed it has. Well, I'm talking to you from the Dubai Expo Center in the United Arab Emirates. It's just this huge conference center inland from those infamous beaches in Dubai, the luxury hotels where sheikhs mix with sun-seeking tourists. And Dubai is just booming, Matt. You can see cranes everywhere. The UAE is this kingdom ruled by a royal family. It's wealthy and focused on being an international city with a global financial center and has some pretty swank architecture. The Emirates got rich from oil and gas. They are members of uh, OPEC. And last year was a banner year with the oil prices soaring. But this year... Dubai is dressing itself up in green. It is hosting the largest climate conference in the world, the 28th COP, and a big focus will be trying to bring down harmful CO2, oil and gas, and coal emissions. Otherwise, the world, as you well know, and we've been reporting, and what a year it's been, we're told by scientists it's just going to continue to heat up if we don't curb emissions, and it's already breaking heat records this year. Mm. We'll get to the green in a moment. Um, These talks are being led by the CEO of the United Arab Emirates National Oil Company. What do we know about him? So the UN rotates these conferences around the world, and this time it was this region, and the UAE wanted the conference, and it chose as the president of this year's COP, Sultan al-Jaber. He is powerful, uh, but he's already become a lightning rod for controversy because he's the climate king this year and these few weeks, but his real job is chief executive of the national oil company, Adnoc. He's attracted a lot of negative attention for those dual roles, but also some high-profile backers like John Kerry, the U.S.'s climate envoy, who believes that this is the guy to persuade the oil and gas interest to be part of the climate solution. And here's what Al Jaber said recently to his industry colleagues. For too long, this industry has been viewed as part of the problem that is not doing enough and in some cases, even blocking progress. This is your opportunity 
to show the world that in fact you are central to the solution. Now I've covered a few of these uh, conferences from a distance. You're there. I think it's fair to say that it's unusual, uh, to put it politely, to have a climate negotiations headed up by the CEO of an oil company. How are the environmentalists who are there responding to that? More than unusual, it's a first. It's mm. a first to have the head of the UN brokered talks on climate, a sitting oil boss. Although, fair to say Al Jaber has more than a dozen years experience running a renewable energy company here in the UAE called Mazdar. And I'm going to tell you a bit more about that in a minute. There was really a storm of controversy over his appointment earlier in the year, including from Al Gore, the former U.S. vice president and a leading environmental voice. Their emissions are larger than those of ExxonMobil, and they have no credible plan whatsoever to reduce them. So this is the person in charge of the cop. He's a nice guy. He's a smart guy. But a conflict of interest is a conflict of interest. And a matter of fact, they have a plan now to have a, a, a new increase in their emissions. As you mentioned, the UAE, in the face of that, will point out its efforts at an energy transition. What did you see in, in terms of those moves? Well, we had a really interesting road trip, Matt. We traveled to the Arabian Desert about 35 kilometers south of Abu Dhabi. Uh, it's, as you might imagine, a vast flat landscape of sand. We came across a camel herder walking along the highway, a this road to the future, because just down that highway is one of the largest solar plants in the world, covering 21 square kilometers. Hmm. You've got this vast sand-colored horizon and then a kind of shiny black sea of mirrored panels, nearly four million of them shimmering in that desert heat. And it's surrounded by these huge transmission towers stretching as far as the eye can see. And I was quite fascinated by the technology, the panel's built in China. Uh, here's the sound of how they turn. Shifting a couple of degrees every time to get the best angle on the sun. At noon, they're almost flat. El Dafra PV plant was officially opened just in time for COP28, and it's really a showpiece of the UAE's green energy mission, its ambition. We spoke to the chief operating officer of Mazdar, that's the renewable energy company, Abdulaziz Alabadli, and he explained to us about the scale and the unique efficiency of these solar panels. So one, it follows the sun from sunrise to sunset. And that's new about this technology because wow. it can uh, follow the sun. Second, it's used by facial technology, which means one, it absorbs sunlight coming from the sky, but also absorbs the reflection of sunlight from the sand to the panels again. Underneath. Underneath. And that's increased the efficiency even further. So the scale, the efficiency in such a plant, allowing us to produce electricity at one of the most competitive prices in the world. So it sounds very ambitious. Um, I suppose the question is, can projects like this replace the UAE's fossil fuel economy, which, as you said, is, is a huge part of, of that nation's economy? Still. So, no, it can't replace not now. You know, he's really the voice of pragmatism, uh, as he tells us, on how the UAE uh, builds a parallel energy business to 
make money, but also to polish their image and to prepare mm. for the last barrel of oil in this kingdom. At the same time, they're making sure they keep making money out of oil reserves. 30% of the Emirates' GDP still comes from exporting oil and gas. And that national oil company has announced an expansion of oil production, aiming for 5 million barrels a day, uh, a tweak up from 4.6 million. So this is really a complicated message for the country which is hosting these climate talks. But Abdulaziz Al-Abadli says the UAE's strategy is part of the solution to climate change. Facing out from fossil fuel is something will happen. There is no question, no one can question that fact. The question is at what pace, without interrupting security of supply and so on I would like to invite people to shed light on how can we accelerate investment in renewable energy how can we provide financing solution for the global south because this is where renewable energy not just a question of decarbonization renewable energy is a question of providing people with access to electricity so the UAE is plowing money into this what's the response being to the investments that it's making well, there's mixed reaction, as you might imagine, but mostly climate strategists are on the alert for greenwashing in the UAE. They mm. say it's leading Gulf states with investments in green energy, and the Emirates has made some significant progress and promises to shore up climate financing for other countries, especially more vulnerable ones. I mean, they have deep pockets made from that oil and gas. Um, the solar plant was constructed in about 18 months, and they're planning others. But while at COP, the UAE is urging other countries to triple their renewable energy capacity, including Canada, and it isn't even doing that itself yet, says Lisa Fisher. She's with the climate think tank 3EG. They're putting a tiny fraction of their oil and gas profits into um, renewable energy at home, into shiny projects that in their own right are impressive, definitely. But in terms of where we need to get to, they're nowhere near enough. We need to remember they're among the top 10 oil producers worldwide. They're still expanding oil and gas production. They're expanding oil, oil and gas production still in, in nature sensitive areas as well. So they're really they're doing sort of one thing on the one hand to sort of show some goodwill, but they're not actually stopping what they're doing with the other hand. So that's the context in terms of where these negotiations are being held. What about the negotiations themselves? What are you going to be watching for as 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 you said, in the wake of this this summer that we've had of fires and floods and storms, um, people gather to try to figure out a way out of this. Yeah, I mean, they are complicated conference negotiations, for sure. Uh, so very briefly, uh, notes on COP28 for you and our listeners, hugely complicated and a lot of jargon here. Um, there will be plenty of negotiations on curbing our addiction to oil, gas and coal. In technical language, that's phasing out fossil fuels. And some longtime COP negotiators, like Sandrine Dixon de Cleve of the Club of Rome Strategy Group, is hoping that the president of COP, Sultan Al-Jaber, will bring it home this year. The fact that we could truly find a leadership within the Sultan that would declare, actually, in the Middle East, by those countries that are the largest producers alongside the United States and Russia and others, truly declare that we would have a phase out, that would be a monumental moment 
if we can seize it and if we can actually develop that momentum. This goes on for, for several days um, and longer than that, actually. What are some of the other sticky issues that will be at play? Yeah, almost two weeks. Yeah. Uh, you're going to hear about methane emissions, more harmful than CO2 emissions. There's a pledge circulating for countries to sign on to, including Canada, uh, aiming to cut 30% of methane emissions in the next seven years. You'll hear about the global stock take, short form GST, which means a completely different thing for Canadians. Mm. Um, it's essentially the cold, hard truth about how little progress the world has made towards the goals it set at the COP Paris in 2015. Uh, loss and damage, another buzzword for money paid to those countries most affected by other nations' harmful emissions and helping smaller countries fund their ambitions to transition out of oil and gas. Uh, climate finance will be a big issue. The stakes are really high for the reasons that we've articulated before, but what you've seen in the last few summits like this is a sense of disappointment for climate advocates. You think of Greta Thunberg going on, but the, the blah, blah, blah that often happens when um, powerful figures end up in these rooms talking to each other. Given where we're at right now, is your sense that this process of gathering those people together is up to the task of actually addressing climate change in a meaningful way? That's a hugely fair question, and it depends who you ask. I mean, trying to get a consensus between up to 200 countries on wording in a text seems next to impossible. And it all happens at the end, at the crunch time of these talks. And put that up against the scale and speed of what we've all witnessed just this past year in climate crises. Well, this process risks being eclipsed by the urgency of climate change. However, as they always say, politics is the art of the possible, and COP gives every country one vote, which means that even the least powerful countries get in a room with the most powerful, and they can try to hammer out some agreements. But there are plenty of smart, experienced delegates here who are openly asking, is COP part trade show, part circus, some people say, part UN conference, is that really the way to meet these rapidly escalating climate crises now? Well, we'll let you know again, Matt, at the end of this conference, and stay tuned for a little bit of fireworks. We'll be listening and watching. Susan, thank you. You're welcome. It's the CBC's Susan Ormiston. She's at the COP28 Climate Conference in Dubai. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.